Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of The Lancet Podcast. From The Lancet offices in London, my name is Nikolai Humphreys. On July the 10th, 2012, we published a new global health series on family planning. This Lancet series reviews the evidence of the effects of population and family planning on people's well-being and the environment. The series appeared ahead of the London Summit on Family Planning, hosted by the UK government on Wednesday, July the 11th, 2012. The summit will bring together participants from across the world to mobilise global action supporting the rights of 120 million additional women and girls to access family planning without coercion or discrimination. The Lancet series amalgamates the latest thinking underpinning these crucial deliberations, showing how lack of access to family planning carries a huge price, not only in terms of women's and children's health and survival, but also in economic terms. We will now hear audio recorded at the launch of the Family Planning series. To start off, Professor and Chair of the Department of Maternal and Child Health at the University of North Carolina and leader of the series, Bert Peterson. When you, when you look at the moment we're in, it's, it's really potentially profound. At the dawn of the 21st century, global leaders gathered and they reviewed the principles and the shared purposes of the United Nations. And they declared, based on the Charter and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, and I'll quote this, in applying these values to the new century, our priorities must be clear. First, we must spare no effort to free our fellow men and women from the abject and dehumanizing poverty in which more than one billion of them are currently confined. Let us resolve, therefore, and then they listed the eight Millennium Development Goals. And as we all know, these eight included not only poverty reduction and global partnerships for development, but also environmental sustainability, achieving universal primary education, empowering women, promoting gender equality, as well as the health goals, maternal health, reduction of child mortality, combating HIV, malaria, and other infectious diseases. And we're here today because although there was no Millennium Development Goal for family planning, we now have extensive and truly compelling evidence for the strong link between family planning and achieving these UN goals. And we likewise have a correspondingly compelling case for meeting unmet need for contraceptive information and services. With this evidence uh, being compiled into a series in the Lancet, the world's leading journal for global health, this series thus becomes the scientific and technical underpinning for the summit on family planning day after tomorrow, and which aims to assure that an additional 120 million women in the world's poorest countries will have access to family planning information, services, and supplies by 2020. So what's new here? What's new is that we have now compiled evidence from existing studies and reported on new ones that in turn make the compelling case that meeting the unmet need for contraceptive information and services will not only improve the health of women, children, and families, and you'll hear in just a moment, for example, that meeting unmet need would prevent an additional 29 to 30% of maternal deaths. But you'll also hear about macroeconomic effects with improvements in the well-being of communities, nations, and even for the planet itself in terms of environmental sustainability. So let us be clear. Increasing access to family planning 
will not by itself enable us to cross the finish line. But let's be equally clear, and the evidence you're about to hear will make it clear, that meeting the great unmet need for contraceptive information and services will help us immensely in getting there. The bottom line, this is a rebirth. This is a reposition of family planning. The authors of the key scientific and technical papers are here to briefly highlight and discuss the evidence, and I want to thank them for getting us here. Having evidence is one thing, but harnessing that evidence and creating a highly effective tool for change in global health is quite another. And the Lancet is simply the best of the best at doing that. And I want to thank Richard Horton and his outstanding team for the privilege of doing this together. It truly is a team effort, and if I, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge Kathy Van Carty, who at the UNC and made this work. And I also want to thank PAI uh, for the work they've done to help us prepare for this and for, and for the launch. And last, but very importantly, uh, the financial support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and from a generous gift by Dennis and Joan Gillings to the Gillings School of Global Public Health. Thanks to all for making this possible. Thank you very much. Thanks very much indeed. So what we're going to do is go, go down our list of speakers. We're going to speak for no more than three minutes each uh, to uh, explain um, the key points of their paper. So let me start off with Dr. Sajid <coughs> Ahmed, who is the key author for the research paper in the book that you have in front of you. Thank you, all of you, uh, for coming over here and showing your keen interest in women's health. Uh, we examine the number of maternal deaths averted by contraceptive use in 172 countries globally. And what we found, our results shows that by contraceptive use, 272 maternal deaths were averted in the year we examined. And uh, this implies that in the absence of the contraceptive use, maternal deaths would be 1.8 times higher than we, what we see today. And this implies also that 38 maternal deaths could be prevented by every 100,000 women using a contraceptive method. And when you look at the association between the contraceptive prevalence rate and the percentage reduction in the maternal mortality, we can clearly see that the higher the maternal, higher the contraceptive use rate and higher the percentage reduction. And you can see the countries with the lower contraceptive prevalence rate, mostly in the sub-Saharan African countries, also has a very little reduction in maternal rate, uh, maternal mortality by a contraceptive use. And our, one of the key interests to look at, if we fulfill the unmet needs of the contraceptive use, that the number of the women who are not using the contraceptive method, but wants to limit their birth and wants to limit their pregnancy or postpone their pregnancy. And that shows that we have a 358 for the 2008, there was 358,000 mortality death, and that would reduce down to the 254,000 if we fulfill the unmet needs. And that simply translated that additionally, 104,000 maternal deaths uh, could be prevented if we uh, fulfill the unmet needs of these women. And, um, and you can see that half of almost like 60% of that maternal death would be in sub-Saharan Africa. And when you consider the South Asia, and that would be additional 40,000 <coughs> maternal deaths could be prevented uh, uh, by a contraceptive use. 
So the key question is how the contraceptive use is reducing maternal mortality. There are at least four pathways through which contraceptive use really maternal, reducing maternal mortality. Number one is reducing the exposure to the pregnancy and its complication and also lowering the risk of the onset abortion, which is responsible for almost like a 30% of the maternal deaths globally. And delaying the first pregnancy in the very young women when the pelvis is still not ready for uh, delivery. And the last one is the reducing the hazards associated with the highest pregnancy, those are too early, too late, and too many, and too close when there is a uh, very uh, many pregnancies in a very short period of time. So in summary, because the family planning provides the primary prevention. It's from the very early beginning, it's preventing the maternal mortality. And this is the first paper showing for each country level of this 120, 172 country, the number of maternal mortalities that could be prevented by the contraceptive use. And countries with the low contraceptive use, predominantly in sub-Saharan Africa and some in Southeast Asia, also have high maternal mortality with weak health infrastructure and consider these countries with the accelerated access to the contraceptive within these countries will provide the greatest gain in the maternal mortality reduction. And I uh, can see that we all know the vaccination prevents the child mortality and contraception prevents the maternal mortality. Vaccination saves ch children and contraception saves women. Thank you. Thank you very much, Saifuddin. Let's go straight to uh, our next speaker, who's Dr. Alex Eze, and he's going to speak to us on global population trends and policy options. Thank you, Richard. Our paper focuses on global population trends and policy options. We started by actually highlighting the current patterns that uh, various regions of the world experience, and then zeroed in on the green areas, which shows populations that are currently having negative population growth. In these countries, um, the total fertility rate is below replacement level. And also, in the high uh, red areas, which is largely concentrated in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where the rate of growth is still over 2% and nearing 3% in some of these countries. Looking at these uh, patterns shows a number of implications for the low uh, fertility regions of the world, and which is really the increasing rapid uh, population aging that's occurring in these countries, uh, which places unsustainable burden on public pension and healthcare systems in these countries, as well as uh, potentially slowing economic growth. For the high fertility and uh, rapid population growth countries and regions, uh, this places a lot of uh, uh, challenges for the government in their ability to provide public services and infrastructure, including healthcare, education, water, and, and others. But also leads to very high dependency ratios, which limit savings and increasingly put a lot of stress on the environment. Going to the policy options, one of the things we noted is the fact that uh, uh, in the low fertility regions, Policy efforts have been constrained by the uh, reluctance to interfere with individual or personal decision making that constrains uh, or that affects childbearing within these countries. And the key policy options in these regions uh, will include, uh, uh, that have been tried, include uh, bad bonuses, subsidized childcare, paid parental leave, uh, 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 among others. For the high fertility regions, um, the major Policy options is really the implementation of fam uh, voluntary family planning programs. And this has uh, been shown to reduce 
uh, fertility by about 1.5 births uh, per woman. Uh, it will address the high levels of unmetne for family planning, which in <coughs> Sub-Saharan Africa is at least one in, five, one in four women, and improve the lives of women and children. And we have also argued in the paper that in addition to the implementation of voluntary family planning programs, there should also be efforts at improving access to health care and education. We reached the conclusion that uh, for the high fertility regions, we need to go beyond the reluctance, the reluctance of dealing with uh, issues of uh, below replacement fertility level. And we make the argument that addressing the challenges of high fertility and rapid population growth in uh, poor countries, as well as low fertility and negative population growth in rich countries, are fundamentally consistent, and we should be able to deal with both. If you look at the... Uh, and for the high fertility regions, we argue that we need to maximize the benefits of family planning. We argue that family planning programs provide a win-win solution. The welfare of individual women and children is improved, and national, and, and national economy and environment are also benefit. The point we're making here is that central to all this discourse is really the choices that women make. In the high fertility country, in the low fertility countries, the challenge is that women are not able to achieve their desired family sizes because of the cost of childbearing. And if there are policies to address those, we can actually increase fertility in these countries. In the high fertility growth and high uh, rapid growth countries, women are not able to achieve their desired family sizes because they don't have access to family planning programs. And if we can implement those programs, it can save the lives of women. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Alex. Remember, hold your questions because we'll uh, take questions after everybody's spoken. Our next speaker is John Cleland. John is a professor here at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he's the lead author of a paper on contraception and health. John. I don't have a PowerPoint, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this paper is about the huge, but largely acknowledged and uh, and the recognized contribution that contraception makes to the survival of women, infants, and children. And Dr. Ahmed has dealt very well with the benefits for women. I just add to that that about 100,000 women a year are dying unnecessarily from pregnancies that they didn't want to have, and that is a scandal. Another little nugget roughly 50,000 women in the developing world die of unsafe abortion and clearly contraception has the potential to virtually eliminate those. Um, but let me concentrate on infant and child survival which hasn't been dealt with yet. Family planning um, affects survival of those groups of the population largely through its potential to widen the gap between one pregnancy and another. We know from really high-quality evidence from the States and from many other countries that when a woman conceives within 18 months of an earlier pregnancy termination, or live birth typically, the risks of miscarriage, stillbirth, uh, early, very early death in the first week of life, low birth weight and prematurely prematurity are significantly increased. And prematurity now is one of the major causes of under five mortality. And we know that fetal growth is a huge determinant even of our survival in middle age. So that link between birth spacing, uh, pregnancy spacing, fetal growth and the state of health in which 
the fetus emerges into this world is crucially important. And it's largely because short intervals impugn fetal growth that we know that when children are born within two years of each other, uh, uh, that second child is 60% more likely to die before his or her first birthday than would, would have been the case had the interval be, been between three and five years. What's not so commonly recognised is that that effect of short intervals extends into the childhood years between age one and five, such that a short birth interval of less than two years between one birth and another raises the risk of child mortality by about 40%. And what's also not realised that in high fertility countries, most children have a younger sibling to compete with. And when a, when a child uh, receives a younger sibling within two years, the risk of that older boy or girl dying between age one and two is raised by about 40%. So you have a, in high fertility countries, where most children born have both older and younger siblings, there's a double jeopardy uh, that hugely raises the risk of under five mortality. Indeed, it's been estimated in high fertility countries, if all births were spaced by at least two years, uh, infant mortality uh, in the general population would fall by 10%, and child mortality between the age of one and five would fall by 20%. Why is this evidence being neglected by medics? Um, even, I hate to say it, but even the Lancet series on maternal survival, on neonatal health and child survival, have largely marginalised the huge role of contraception, both for the effects on survival of women, which Dr. Ahmed's talked about, and the effects on neonatal infant and child health that I've tried to summarise for you. I think one reason is that the evidence has been produced by people like me, demographers, non-medical scientists, and published in non-medical journals. Second reason might be that family planning is regarded by even many of my colleagues in the London School, dare I say it again, uh, as, as a humdrum prosaic, not very exciting intervention, and they'd rather go for the more glamorous, um, high-tech interventions. And thirdly, there have been no randomised controlled trials. In fact, you can't do a randomised controlled trial of the effect on health of contraception. You can't allocate 5,000 women to use contraception and prevent the other 5,000. And such is the obsession with randomised controlled trials that I think family planning has suffered from not being part of that holy grail of scientific evidence. So I endorse exactly what Burke Peterson said. It's been vastly neglected, horrendously neglected for 15 years. It ought to be one of the priority interventions for maternal health, for neonatal survival and infant and child health. And that's what this series is arguing so I just want to make a, a, a few final points. First of all, this series is not about population control. It is about improving choices for women through better information services around contraception and family planning. 
Um, as Jane pointed out, too often the debate in the past has stalled before it's even started because it's, it's been couched perhaps inadvertently in terms of population control. That is not what this series is about. Indeed, what this series shows is by improving choices through better information for women, there are health dividends, economic dividends, and environmental dividends through those better choices that women are empowered to make. And finally, um, it's very important also to stress, and I do want to draw your attention to the comments, which we haven't talked about. There is an extraordinary degree of consensus around these messages. If you look at the comments, we have pieces written by the Office of the Prime Minister in several African countries. Uh, we've got ministers of international development, ministers of health, taking part and leading this debate around family planning. At the symposium this afternoon, we will have the Minister of Health from Ethiopia joining us also to talk about the importance of contraceptive information and services for his country. So this extraordinary degree of consensus across the scientific advocacy and political communities is very important as we approach the summit on Wednesday. We're on the cusp of what is a new social movement for family planning. And family planning for the last decade or so has been so neglected, so marginalized in global health. It's been the Cinderella of global health. And this is an opportunity to correct the mistakes of the past and to put us on a sustainable direction to uh, improving the lives of women and children, as John pointed out. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Those were the closing remarks from our Editor-in-Chief, Richard Horton, from the launch of the Family Planning series. And that also closes this episode of The Lancet Podcast. We will be back next week with more from The Lancet. Goodbye.